Hi, I'm Rabbi Natalie Louise Shudman. You're listening to Drinking and Drushing Tour with a Twist. Just a reminder to keep your head up and your eyes forward. Shana Tova. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know, there are three things that people really don't love to talk about. They don't love to talk about sex, they don't like to talk about money, and they don't like to talk about death. Sounds about right, yeah. But in chaplaincy work, they talk about all three. Really? Yeah, a lot of people decide that they want to share their stories, their wisdom, their thoughts, their fears um, as their time is coming to an end, especially in palliative care or hospice work. That's really interesting. I never really thought about it like that. I think a lot of the time people are afraid to talk about death because there's a superstition that it will bring it nearer. But as we're going into Rosh Hashanah, a lot of the time, this is why it's called the day of dread, right? This day of fear about who shall live and who shall die. Yeah, I think a big piece of it is also just a fear of the unknown. It's death is that uncharted territory. It's that place that we don't really know what happens to you, to your conscience, to your soul after you die. And there's something inherently scary about not knowing what's next. I may not be able to see too far into the future, but I definitely know what's coming next. And for us, that's two guests, two rabbis who have done this work, really hard work, chaplaincy work, helping people navigate end-of-life scenarios, but also the joys and the difficulties in dealing with what comes next. Let's get started. Many people have heard me talk, especially over the summer episodes, about the experience that I had at New York Presbyterian while Cornell as a CPE intern. That's CPE for Clinical Pastoral Education, where I was learning how to be a chaplain, both in the NICU and on adult oncology wards, and really just trying to figure out what it means to work with people at some of the most trying times of their lives. And man, I am feeling very lucky this week because for this portion, We're dealing with Moses at the very end of his life, and that's not easy for anybody trying to figure out, especially as a leader, what comes next after you're gone. But lucky for us, we have two incredible chaplains with us on this episode, and we are very, very excited to welcome them now. Rabbi Jamie Server graduated from the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in 2017 and is currently working both as a rabbi and as a multi-faith chaplain at a hospice in upstate New York. With a lifelong connection to the earth and her ancestors, alongside her love of genealogy and Jewish history, Rabbi Serber also has a practice of making soul candles, yurtzeit candles, and just happens to be a Jewish medium, which I think is very cool. Rabbi Serber is hoping to finish her last unit of CPE post-High Holy Days and hopes to celebrate with some cookie dough ice cream and some really big belly laughs in her garden. And it wouldn't be the same celebration without her husband, Brad, their two-year-old Jack, a new baby on the way, and their Boston pug, Luna, and two cats, Max and Oliver. We're also super, super excited to welcome Rabbi Natalie Louise Shribman to our show. So Rabbi Server, Rabbi Shribman, welcome to the show. Thank you. So great to be here. Yeah, thanks. 
And of course, it wouldn't be the same if we didn't have the support team behind the chaplains of this year's NYP summer chaplain interns. What's up, Gabe Snyder, roommate to this particular NYP intern? How's it going? It's good. And what's up to Edon Baldman, partner of NYP Allen and Columbia intern Agnes Barrel? How's it going, Edon? Update still hot in my apartment. Well, hopefully this episode will both heat you up and cool you down. Let's get started. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Did you know that I graduated from NYP while Cornell's chaplaincy program? Woo! I did know that. I was on that Zoom call. That's true. I graduated alongside cantorial student Agnes Farrell and cantorial student Jenna McMillan, and it was very, very exciting. It was. It was a lot of fun cheering for all of you. I appreciated the cheer because being a chaplain wasn't easy, especially when people were really struggling with things that were happening in their lives, or even when I was accompanying people in their last moments. Yeah, no, that sounds really difficult. And I know that Moses is going through some of this in this week's portion. Do you think he could have used a chaplain? Probably, yeah. Well, for those of us that might not be as familiar with this week's portion, do you think that you could give us a quick rundown? I can try. Moses is 120 years old and he's not getting any younger, plus that whole thing about not being able to enter the promised land, so he appoints Joshua as his successor. Also, Moses writes down the teaching and gives it to the priests. Wait, is the teaching the Torah? But we're still in the Torah. Meta. When will they read the teaching? On Sukkot, during the Shemitah year. Hey, that's this year. Get ready for some Torah. God ominously says to Moses, the time for you to die is drawing near. Creepy, but a gentle touch isn't exactly God's style. Anyway, it's time for Joshua to learn about being the leader, so he and Moses go into the tent of meeting for a chat with God. Was it a happy chat? Nope. God tells Moses that after he dies, the Israelites will turn away from God and practice idolatry and break the covenant. I feel like having Joshua in this meeting was probably really awkward. Regardless, the Israelites will do bad things, God will will get angry, bad stuff will happen, you know the drill by now. Suffice to say, it won't be pretty. God even has Moses write down his whole speech like one of those magicians with a sealed envelope so that the people will know that God was right all along. Moses tells the priests to put the teaching next to the ark and carry it with them. He chastises them for being stiff-necked and defiant, turning away from God even before Moses' death. Note, don't do that. Lastly, we get a preview of next week's parasha. Oh boy, a poem! I hope it will be happier than this week's portion. And that's Parashat Vayelech. Wow, Gabe, could you talk any faster? <laughs> that was great. That was a really funny commercial. I want to, like, buy the Torah now. Coming soon to a synagogue near you. So Rabbi Serber, there are some people that don't really know what a chaplain is. And so I was wondering if you might be able to start us off by explaining some of the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I see myself as being a support both emotionally and spiritually for the patient and the family, right? We like to think of working with the family as a whole. So my focus isn't solely on the patient, but again, rather the entire family. And you're working with these families in times of real need. I mean, sometimes there are celebrations and there are wins that we get to like be very excited about, but often you're advising them in times of real trouble or even when they're trying to think towards the future or even if they're just trying to relax in the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, so I just want to preface that with like, sometimes there is a real joy in the death and dying process, because some of the folks I'm with have been suffering for quite a while. So there is that juxtaposition. But yes, I am really fortunate to be able to be with folks during the most vulnerable and holy time, I think, in their lives. The work that you do is clearly so meaningful, not only to you, but to those you help. And from my perspective, it really is sacred work that you're doing. And we say that about all clergy, that, you know, rabbis, that cantors, that educators do sacred work. But there's something particularly holy about being a chaplain, about supporting people and helping people through some of the most difficult or at least most emotionally taxing parts of their lives. So I'm wondering what drives that work? What values, what insights, what ideas drive you forward? Absolutely, Gabe. So during this time where we're starting to do some real deep reflection and introspective work, you know, every year I kind of try to do like a right? Where I'm thinking about what guides me. So this is great timing here. So I think a guiding principle for me is the idea that no one dies alone and that the Shekhinah is with the person at their bedside. And so I try to be that embodiment of the Shekhinah, no matter what patient I'm with. So that's a big one for me. I love the idea of no one being alone, this idea of the Shekhinah or of God's presence being with somebody. And I can't help but notice that in the beginning of this Torah portion, God's presence isn't just there at the beginning. A lot of the time our Torah portions read, right, Vayidaber Adonai El Moshe Lemor, Vayomer Adonai, you know, El Moshe Lidaber or Lemor, or insert thing here that God said to Moses saying... But in this portion, we have a really interesting moment where Moses goes and speaks, right? That Moses is going and he's speaking these words, these particular words, whatever he's about to say to them, to all of Israel. And it makes you wonder, okay, like, these are Moses's actual thoughts, right? Like these are not Moses being God's ambassador. This is Moses alone speaking to the community. And what that must have felt like to be in this moment, a leader who had often been a mouthpiece or a go-between between God and the Israelite people to finally stand on his own and say, these are my words. Is it important for people to be able to use these opportunities as they approach death or as they approach an unknown future to really be able to speak out certain words to be able to get things off their chest? Is that a healthy end? Absolutely. So in chaplaincy and in hospice, we have the belief of dying a good death. And we try to prepare patients both uh, emotionally and spiritually and also physically to die the best death possible. And so part of that is being able to kind of tie up any loose ends, if that's even possible, to really kind of shore up the end of their lives because you don't want to bring that baggage with you, right? 
you want to be able to, when one dies, well, it makes the dying process a lot easier, right? Uh, Sometimes people really want to hold on because they have that unfinished business. And then other times, you know, it makes the process a lot easier, to be honest. You don't want to hold on to that spiritual and emotional gunk, especially on to the next life, right? And thinking about that emotional, spiritual baggage, especially in relation to this week's Torah portion, we find Moses, who, unlike most of us, is actually told what's going to happen next. What's going to happen when he's not there anymore? And it's not a good picture. Moses is directly told things are going to go bad. Things are not going to go well All of the people, they're going to turn away from God. They're going to sin. They're going to break the covenant. And God's going to be angry. And all of these terrible things are going to happen. So Moses kind of has this, the opposite experience of what you're describing, of dying a good death. And part of that is that he knows what's next. And it's not good. The other piece of it is that Moses isn't quite dying on his own terms. He's trying to tie up these loose ends. He's appointed Joshua as his successor. He's written down the law and given it to the priests so that they have it and so that they can carry on without him. And yet, there's this whole big thing that he's told it's not enough. So I'm curious how you as a chaplain, if you could put yourself into that headspace of what would you do with a patient who is trying so hard to tie up those loose ends, and yet still knows that there's something that inherently is always going to be incomplete? That's a great question. So, right, like we rabbis do, we answer our question with a question and then come back or a story. So here we go. I have a patient who is obviously, well, they're dying and they have a youngish family. Their kids are in their 20s. And uh, this patient is really concerned. They have very strong faith. They're not concerned about what's going to happen next, but they're concerned about their kids. And they say, you know, I know my kids are good kids. I gave them all of the values I possibly could, but I'm still scared for them. And so while I see that parallel here with Moshe, right? And, you know, if I was Moshe's chaplain, I would sit with him and tell him that it's okay to be worried. And now's the time to give that reassurance to make sure that that love is given. And although we can't control what happens, there's always that love, no matter which world, which part of the veil we're on is always there. And that's really the ikar or the essence. I know that you also brought up the idea that you are a medium, and I think that in some ways Moshe also acts as a medium, right? There is a conversational piece to what is happening. And so in terms of being in this world, Olam Hazet, and thinking about the next world, Olam Haba, you know, what is it that we should be thinking about, especially in terms of Jewish wisdom or Jewish life or translating this into kind of these tangible tactics? that we think that Moshe is trying to get us ready for also in his passing or in his getting ready to pass. I think it works for both us and, you know, the people of Israel, right? Shore up your spiritual gunk, you know, get the emotional, live the the best life you can, right? And so 
I don't necessarily mean that as in, you know, blow all your money and buy a yacht, although that might be nice. But we have to do this inner work of really taking that look at ourselves and saying, how can I make things better? How can I improve myself? How can I improve my relationships? How can I make this life truly worth it? Right. And I think that for the Israelites, right, it's scary not having Moses, although I can imagine they're also pretty angry and ready for a change. But I think, again, just working on those relationships with oneself and the people that you love. So when we're dealing with chaplaincy, a lot of the time we're dealing with this disorientation. We have orientation of like kind of being in a new place, disorientation of being in a completely new world and people not really knowing who you are outside of the hospital. And so I find it really powerful that Moses says to the people in this portion, Anochi hayom lo uchal od ulvo, that like I can no longer go out or, or come in. Like I'm no longer able to kind of be dealing with the dailies goings on. And for me, one of the most difficult situations that I found um, in my experience was people losing their identity when they were in the hospital or losing their identity when they're in this space. And I'm curious how we deal with that knowing that Moses didn't lose his identity in this moment, right? Like he is still Moshe, he's still really strong. And how we might be able to translate that into how we treat people at this stage, even if they're no longer able to come and go as they once did. Absolutely. That passage specifically reminds me of my work with my Alzheimer's patients. And just what a toll that Alzheimer's takes on the patient, but also the families. And it is easy for us to look at a patient with Alzheimer's, a loved one, and just say, you know what, they are not, this is not my loved one, and kind of divorce ourselves from them. It's another to really embrace them. And as as one progresses with Alzheimer's and whatever other diseases or, you know, whatever other things are going on with the person there's also this loss of agency, right? And sometimes physically can't go and come, right? And it's learning to have that compassion and understanding for that patient and helping the family members to see that their loved one isn't just a shell. We just have to do a little bit more digging and we have to have that compassion. And it may even look like just us supporting them physically so that they can walk if that's still a possibility. And really just being there with them. And again, like I've said before, just showing that love and showing up. I think that that's a really important thing that that not only do we show up, but in how we show up or how we make these things happen, right? In the relationships that we're building, no matter what the amount of time is. But speaking of time, I want to make sure that I get this last question in under the wire. Moses calls Joshua and he says in front of the entire Israelite people, Chazak ve'ematz, to be strong, to be resolute, to be brave, to be present. And if you had one message that you wanted our listeners and you wanted people who are experiencing chaplaincy for the first time or anyone who might just be interested in what this Torah portion might say to them, what might that message be? What's one message or vision or Two words that you may have, right? Chazak ve'emat. What's yours for our listeners today? Show up. Show up and be yourself. 
show up and welcome the vulnerability, show up and welcome the help, and show up and welcome the work. I always get really excited in these episodes where I get to learn from our Q&A guests, our, our guest interviewers, as much as I do from our featured guests. And today is really a special opportunity for me as I get to welcome Rabbi Natalie Louise Shribman to the podcast in this particular episode. Rabbi Natalie Shribman is currently living in Wausau, Wisconsin, and serves a conservative congregation in Eau Claire, having graduated from HECJR in 2020. Having finished her final unit of CPE with the Mayo Clinic this past summer, congratulations! Rabbi Stridman will be starting as a chaplain at the Marshfield Clinic. Some of her self-care and hobbies include going for runs, spending time outdoors, and cuddling with her cat, Bissamim. Adorable. She currently lives with her fiancé, Rabbi Benj Altshuler, and the wedding is less than a month away. Talk about a packed September. Together, they enjoy reading, walking, picking fruits and veggies, and chasing Bissamim around the house. Rabbi Sherman, it's such a pleasure and honor to pass you the mic. Wonderful. Thank you. This has been a really fun episode and really great to learn from Rabbi Serber. So I was just curious, this is something I've asked myself throughout this past year and a half, how do you think the pandemic has changed your viewpoint of chaplaincy or of hospice chaplaincy? Yeah, this is definitely interesting time to be doing this work, right? I think I see myself as, this is going to sound a little bit grim, but like a, a death walker, right? In terms of walking alongside folks who are experiencing these really challenging times. Um, I'm sure, Rabbi Shribman, you've also seen just how this has impacted families in the hospital and not being able to visit or being able to say goodbye to their loved ones. And we really act as, you know, kind of like shlichim in a way where we're helping people to say goodbye over tablets, over computers. It is just such a surreal time. And I think it's just also a real time of humility. Yeah, I think that the concept, my like job as a, at the Mayo Clinic was to call families and tell them that their loved one has died. It was a terrible task and that they couldn't come in to say goodbye. And I had to coordinate all those things. And I think that was definitely the most difficult. And it also gave me an insight into how families connect and what they need when someone has died and what they want to share. Um, I think that's a really intimate moment to be a part of. So I'm grateful for that. How did you get into doing hospice chaplaincy? Was this something you always wanted to do? Or is this something that you like fell into by accident? So I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. So right as the pandemic started, my family, you know, my husband, myself and our toddler and all of the animals, we decided we needed to come back home to the Hudson Valley here. And so we kind of did this crazy 30-hour car trip from North Dakota, where he was working, all the way back to New York. And so this was a moment of transition. And I was just, you know, in the fall of last year, I was finishing up my uh, third chaplaincy unit and looking for work. And I figured, let's try hospice. And I just felt incredibly lucky and privileged to be doing this work. And I'm really glad that I gave it a shot and that it's worked out so well. 
that's great for you. Do you think that this is something that you'll continue to do for many years? Where do you see your rabbinate going? Yeah, I hope so. I really enjoy hospice work. It is a whole different beast from hospital chaplaincy, but it's good. It really feeds my soul and I'm excited to see how both the job and myself just grow and develop. Yeah, good. I usually get asked this question by people who don't quite know what a chaplain does. So I'm curious, how do you use prayer with other people, especially people who may not be Jewish? How do you connect with God and with them at the same time? Yeah, so that's a really great question. So in my role as a multi-faith chaplain, I use my Jewish values and my Jewish understanding and identity of prayer. And so what that means is I'm not looking to impose my Jewish views on anyone at all. Actually, I'm using it to guide my prayer practice. And so if I know that the family is receptive to God language, I will use God. I personally choose not to pray using Jesus or any kind of Christian or other kind of entities within this prayer practice. And sometimes, you know, if I know that the patient finds comfort in scripture or the Lord's Prayer, that's something I'm happy to join in with as well. I also pray from the heart. To be honest, I'm not really great at memorizing prayer. You know, all of you rabbinical students and rabbis out there, you know what liturgy testing is like. So yes, obviously I have those memorized, but it is quite rare that I use that in this line of work. And so I really try to tap into like my own neshama and bring forth an offering. I think that's the great part of being a hospital chaplain that you get to do spontaneous prayers. It's a very difficult skill to work on. And I think it's one you don't get to use a lot outside of this work. So I think we're doing a cool thing with that skill. I wanted to ask you to do a spontaneous prayer, if that's all right. So we're at this moment when Moses is dying. I'm curious if you could offer a spontaneous prayer for Moses and for the Israelites. Sure, absolutely. So this will be a good practice for all of us. So let's just uh, take a moment here to feel our feet on the ground, get nice and grounded here. And when you're ready, let's take a deep breath in and out. And one more in and out. Holy One of Blessing, Shina. We are here today and we just want to thank you for all of the blessings that you've bestowed upon us today. God, as we walk through the desert, we ask for this upcoming year and certainly this Parsha that we find the comfort and guidance, not just from you, not just from each other, but in holy communion with one another. God, we ask that although we don't have Moshe here anymore, that we are still able to feel his presence and guidance and wisdom as we enter another year of uncertainty and navigating those straights and narrows. So we thank you for these blessings and let us say amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you. 
Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. You know, we were discussing earlier on in this conversation that Moses calls Joshua, and he also says it to the whole Israelite congregation, but the words that he says to Joshua in his leadership in front of all of Israel is hazak ve'ematz, to be strong, to be resolute, to be brave, to be present. And so my question for you is for all of the community of Israel, as they're standing or sitting or riding the subway listening to this podcast, do you have a drink for Midrashic mixology that is strong and resolute and brave? It's at least one of those things, yes. In honor of the future that God lays out for Moses where kind of everything's gonna go wrong, we are so happy to present the bloody bad outlook. Start with two slices of cucumber for the purest characters in our story, Moses and Joshua. Muddle those together in a shaker with a quarter ounce of lemon juice and a quarter ounce of dry vermouth. Add in one and a half ounces of vodka for a clear vision of the future, and a dash or two of Tabasco sauce to spice it up. Add ice and shake until well chilled and strain over fresh ice. To drive home the point that the future is not so positive, top it off with one and a half ounces of tomato juice and gently stir to combine. Garnish with a cucumber spear, because even in a not-so-bright future, we still have something to cleanse the palate and, with the high holy days upon us, ourselves. For a non-alcoholic version, omit the vermouth and vodka. Add in one and a half ounces of lemonade, but bring in a bit more bitter by doubling the lemon juice to a half ounce. The future doesn't look too sweet after all. The future might not look great, but that doesn't mean we can't enjoy a good drink. L'chaim. Wow, that just speaks for a sweet new year coming up in, you know, six days. Thank you. (laughs) After a day of hospice work, if I could have that alcohol, let me tell you. But being pregnant, that doesn't work so well. So I think I'll stick to the lemonade. Nice. As we've said before, whenever Gabe brings up any sort of lemonade, with the sweet comes the sour. And it is a bittersweet moment where I have to tell you that we've already hit our section for thank yous and closing cues. So, Rabbi Jamie Serber, Rabbi Natalie Shridman, Gabe and Idan, in Vayelech, we learn about Moses' winding down and some of his last words to the people. In your experience, what are some patients or congregants' final thoughts and or lessons that have been meaningful to you? For Gabe and Idan, who haven't yet done CPE, what are some words of wisdom that have come from older loved ones to you? Rabbi Serber, we'll start with you. This is a case where I really feel like patients show me more every day about how to show up for myself and for, I think, humanity at large. And so I think what I've really taken away from my work with patients is really uh, this is the time now. Now is always a good time to work on that emotional baggage, emotional junk, because you don't want it to get in the way of a good death. And I think in terms again, of doing chaplaincy, just stay true to yourself and be open to the work. Being present, being yourself, and also ensuring that you have not only a 
good death, but maybe even the endings and the meanings of a good life. Rabbi Shribman, what do you have for us today? Yeah, I was going to share a short story. I had this patient a while ago who was hit by a car and he um, broke his leg in the process and he really wanted to recover enough to walk his daughter down the aisle. And um, as I got the opportunity to be with him in rehab and each time that he took a step, he would say to himself, I'm going further and further and this is my journey and I'm going to take it one step at a time. And he just kept saying one step at a time. And so I took those words with me of slowing down, taking one step at a time, and just remembering that we are making progress, even if we feel like we're still in the same spot. Wow. I mean, talk about being strong and resolute and looking forward and making sure that each step is really meaningful. Gabe, any wisdom from loved ones that you want to share? So my grandmother died this past year. Um, And she was one of the best people I've ever known. And she had a lot of lessons. She had a lot of songs, particularly Gilbert and Sullivan songs. She knew every word to every Gilbert and Sullivan show, which it seems a little impossible and also a little insane. And yeah, those assumptions are correct. And also she did. But more importantly, back to the question of what lessons she taught me. One in particular stands out, uh, and that's that it's always time for a little something, and chocolate is always a good option. No chocolate? White chocolate? Dark chocolate? Dark chocolate or bust. 100%. This podcast approves. Literally everyone, and we know you can't see us, listeners, but everyone cheered. Everybody was about it. Edan, any words of wisdom that you'd like to share? In a sort of similar vein to Gabe, my bubby has imparted many, many lessons over the years. And there was a stretch of time when I was in high school until I was almost done with college where she was living with um, with my mom and my brother and sister. And I was at that age where I didn't mind her being there and I really enjoyed getting to spend more time with her. And my siblings were like middle of high school and didn't want anything to do with their not cool grandma who just happened to be around. Um, though over time, it ended up being, you know, really, really great for everybody. But um, over all the years of my life, I've not once seen my baby yell at anyone, never get angry at anyone ever. That being said, from what I understand, that wasn't always the case <laughs> historically. In my experience, she hasn't. And I think from that, I've learned patience, especially with being a grandmother in a house with hormonal teenagers. Patience is really the key. I appreciate that, especially because I always say patience is a virtue, just not one of mine. I'm working on it. It is a growth area. I think for me, I got to experience a lot this summer from birth to death, all within the same 11 weeks. And a major thing that I took away from it was when you have the opportunity, just sit down and listen. Ask the questions and sit down and listen. And most of the time, that's what people are hoping for. The ability for you to either sit there and listen, sit and ask questions, or sit and be present so that, as Rabbi Jamie Serber said before, they don't feel so alone. I think that there's a lot to be said for meaningful conversations like this, especially as we're talking and moving into the high holidays, and especially as many people are going to go and sit through Yisker services that that really help us remember those that we've lost. 
And so this is all going to continue being a part of a larger conversation that goes way beyond this episode. So Jamie, Natalie, if people want to continue this conversation with you, if they want to learn more, how can they find or follow you? Yeah, so folks can follow me. My website is myrabbijamie.com. And it's the same on Instagram. Although I have to be totally honest, my Instagram has not been updated for a while. But come find me there. I promise we'll be in touch. I can be found on Instagram at natlushrib25. And my congregation's website is templesholom with two O's, wi.org. I'm really sure that many people are going to want to continue asking questions, having this conversation, and we appreciate your willingness to be so open, especially as we're coming upon these holidays so quickly. And so thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jamie Server. Thank you so much, Rabbi Natalie Louise Shribman, for your wisdom, for your kindness, for your candor in this situation of talking about a really tough subject. Thank you so much, as always, to my co-host, Gabe Snyder, talking about a subject that means a lot to him, especially as he remembers those that he's lost over the last few years at this time. Thank you to our incredible executive producer, Edan Waldman, who puts up with us, whether we're laughing, crying, talking, joking, or eating chocolate while creating a podcast. And of course, thank you to Kate, our editor, for bringing us all together and making the magic happen. Shana Tova Umitsuka, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. You know, Amanda, as you mentioned at the top of the show today, on the High Holy Days, we recite this refrain, Berosh Hashanah Yikatevun Uviyom Tzom Kippur Yechatemun. On Rosh Hashanah, it's written, and on Yom Kippur, it is sealed, Mi Yechieh Umi Yamut, Who Shall Live and Who Shall Die. And that's easily the hardest piece of liturgy in our tradition, in my opinion. I really struggle with the idea of a God who would willingly allow people to die, willingly allow people to suffer, willingly allow people's families to suffer. And yet, in this week's Torah portion, we read about Moses being told he is going to die, his death is upon him, and he needs to prepare, he needs to get ready. He needs to get the people ready, and even after he does that, it's not going to be enough. It's an incredibly difficult idea, and it's a really difficult Torah portion. And with all of that difficulty, it's so moving and refreshing and helpful to hear from people who work with death on a regular basis and who do so in such a profound and sacred way. I think there's something to be said about the fact that there's joy in these moments too, and that might be unexpected for our listeners and for people who haven't had this type of experience. It's also a really interesting thing that in this pivotal moment of Moses picking out his last words to the people right before his very final chapter, that he brings in a joyful holiday. He brings in Sukkot, right? Hachag, like a a joyous eight-day holiday where people get to enjoy being together, to celebrate what they've been through, to really acknowledge that there's joy in living through the hardest days. I hadn't really considered that. It's a really remarkable point. I also think there's something really wonderful about the fact that Sukkot is a harvest holiday. This idea 
of a time to be born and a time to die, a time to sow, a time to reap. These things are connected, these cyclical events in the world and in our own lives. I'm really interested in the fact that this idea of harvesting is in that way connected with the death of Moses. Absolutely. And there's always an opportunity to learn. And I think that's something that Deuteronomy spends a lot of time with us on. In fact, maybe one of the most interesting lines that we hear in the Torah comes in verse 12, Deuteronomy 31, 12. This idea of gathering the people, and here they really do mean the people. Ha'anashim, v'hanashim, v'ataf, v'hagercha, right? Men, women, children, strangers, all within your own communities, all within your own gates, in order that they can hear and in order that they can learn. What does that mean? It means that once they've heard and once they've learned, it says, V'yar'u et Adonai Elohechem v'shamru la'asot et kol divrei ha-Torah hazot. That they can be in awe of, or they can revere, or they can fear, which isn't my favorite translation, God, and they can observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Now, for some people, they may look at HaTorah Hazot as the law, right? Halakha. But what if we were to look at it as this wisdom that we're gaining from somebody who's lived an incredibly meaningful and full life? I think that's a really wonderful interpretation, especially when you consider that the uh, Torah flowed through Moses. And in this very Torah portion, right before his death, he writes down the teaching and passes it to the next generation through the priests. There's a lot to be passed along here and not a lot of time to do it in. And so I think the best thing that we could say to you today is he's ku v'imsu, right? Be strong and resolute. Al tiru v'al ta'artsu. Don't be in fear. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay because you're not alone. We're here with you. We raise a strong glass, we raise a resolute glass, we raise you a wonderful expectation for a happy new year, a sweet new year. Shana Tova, everyone, and L'chaim. I'm Rabbi Jamie Serber, and this is Drinking and Joshing Torah with a Twist. And I am inviting you to check yourself, check your emotions, check your surroundings, and see what's good for the upcoming year.